0: So the two hands were sitting there pointing at these pictures at the table, just like that. And we said, why did you point to those? So the left brain is the one talking, sat there and made up a story. Well, that's easy, said. The left hemisphere knew why it pointed to the picture it saw, right? But the left hemisphere, in fact, doesn't know why that left hand is pointing to this other picture. It does not know it. But because the hand, that patient's hand was pointing at that picture, it quickly made up a reason why it was pointing to that picture. It had to tell a story that made sense.
1: Hello, hello everyone and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today we're going to be looking at the extraordinary phenomena of the left brain interpreter in which a part of the left hemisphere tends to literally invent an explanation for something it's perceiving based on past experience, sometimes completely mistakenly. So for me this is a really important phenomena to our first series as we introduce the cognitive limits of our brains as it shows just how tricky our so-called rational minds can be and it begs questions about the authority and validity of our conscious faculties and how much of that is the result of previous bias. So the most interesting part about this for me is again is that the subject has no idea cognitively that it's an invention and it thinks that this is true information. and and not just a deduction uh, based on previous experience. But before we jump to any conclusions, uh, in order to understand this properly, we need to speak to a legend in the relatively young field of neuroscience, the person who actually discovered this phenomenon in the first place, Dr. Mike Gazzaniga. So, he is the founder of the Centers for Cognitive Neuroscience at both the University of California and Dartmouth College. And he is a proficient author of books, uh, both for the general public and more specialized books as well. Some of his titles include The Ethical Brain, uh, Who's in Charge, Free Will, and the Science of the Brain. And most recently, which we're going to be discussing today. The Consciousness Instinct Unraveling the Mystery of How the Brain Makes Mind. and He made his name in a field as one of the pioneers of split brain research, which led to the bulk of his early work on what are the functions of each hemisphere of the brain and how the left and right hemispheres communicate with each other, which we'll be touching on today as well. So who better to answer all of our questions and doubts about this tricky area? And unlike many other scientists who prefer just to stick to talking about Facts and observable evidence, he is not afraid to write about the ethics and the philosophy of these discoveries. So I'm extremely excited to see how he gets to his conclusions. Are you ready? Let's go. Dr. Michael Gazzaniga, welcome to Chasing Consciousness and thank you so much. It is such an honor to have such a legend, uh, one of the creators, as it were, of cognitive neuroscience. I'm, I'm extremely, extremely excited about all of this. Mike, I, I tend to begin um, by asking about your passion, your excitement and those youthful questions. Because I think that those questions that we had right at the start in our youth generally tend to be the most important or at least the most human and the most real. So before we get started about The Left Brain Interpreter and your new book about consciousness, tell me, what was what were the burning questions in your youth that got you curious? And, and have you managed to answer any of these big questions?
0: <laughs> well, you... Uh... It's such a, a difficult question to answer, and the reason that, uh, uh, I wasn't one of those kids that grew up and said, "I want, I want to see what I can add to uh, physics or quantum mechanics or whatever." I just kind of had a simple question. I, I kept noticing, which is, uh, "What the hell's going on?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that what is it? That is the big question, isn't it? What yeah, is going on here? But, what's, what's going on?
0: Yeah, what, what's going on with the Girl Legs store? What's, what's going on with that pigeon that keeps uh, uh, coming back when I release him a mile away? Just what's going on?
1: But can yeah. you qualify that? Do you mean what's going on in here or what's going on out there? I know that's kind out of...
0: Yeah, what, well, what's going on out there is going on in here too. but but. Uh, but it's just you know how, how, how does that work? Uh, just a, just a flat-footed uh, question. Uh, how does that work? And and uh, and so it started you know with little things, uh, an interest in uh, some chemistry. So I had a you know the, the the child's chemistry set, and then my father was a physician, and I was interested in finding out for some reason. Don't ask me why. I have no idea, but. The, the the chemical composition of rabbit muscle. So uh, this was, you know, 70, 60 years ago. And my father brought home a rabbit and said, okay, you can, you can get a little muscle there and see if you can figure out the crazy stuff. And, uh, but then it it grew into, uh, I thought I was going to be, a, I mean, I come from a medical family and I thought I would, would be going into medicine and, uh, and, uh, and most of my college days were spent in medicine. And then one, one uh, unforgettable spring, uh, when I was in, as an undergraduate, <clears throat> I, read, I read a paper by Roger Sperry on how nerves get from one point to another. In other words, how does the brain hook up anyway? And I thought, well, that's fabulous. That How does that work? And then it turns out... Uh, He was at a Caltech, which is in California, Pasadena, California. Mm -hmm. And it further turns out that my then-girlfriend lived right next door to Caltech. And so I was beginning to see a vehicle for seeing my girlfriend over the summer if I could only get a job at Caltech for the summer. So, you know, who knows? Who knows what what led what? But anyway, I... As most people who get into to science, uh, I, think, I think this is true. I may be wrong about this. But uh, you start looking uh, at one question. You arrive to think uh, at the place. And you arrive to think that you're going to you go after that question. And then something else happens during that experience
1: that grabs your attention even more. And pretty soon you're doing doing that, and, and you then realize that you're asking the wrong question. That you've been asking the wrong question. It's not necessarily the experiment that's wrong. It's it's maybe the question.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's always uh, the world's always providing you with answers, and the question is, what's the question? <laughs> so, so it, it's a, a common experience. In this particular experience, I arrived at
1: at uh, this great institution, Caltech, and. Roger went on to get the Nobel Prize for some of the work that you were, you were doing there, wasn't it?
0: Indeed, 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 and, and, and deservedly. And uh, he was a fabulous mentor. And uh, what was going on was he still had some work going on in, in the neuroregeneration neuro uh, area. Uh, but they were very deep into animal research on, on split brains. Right And it was just fascinating. So I jumped in on that during that summer and became extremely interested and did an experiment or two. And then went back to college for my senior year and decided not to go to medical school. I I had been bitten by the basic science bug. And so I changed my direction and uh, wound up being a grad student at Caltech the following year.
1: Well, I know that you made your name, as it were, uh, with the quite extraordinary results of those first four or five years of of split-brain science. Let's kick off with that, because it really lays the foundation uh, for the left-brain interpreter, doesn't it? Tell us a little bit about that earlier research. Uh, How, Basically, what were the experiments, and what did you conclude?
0: So in the context was important. As I said, there was a whole lab committed to understanding what happened when you disconnected the two half brains and cats and in monkeys and lots of work going on. And in the context of the time, there was um, a, a belief that nothing happened paradoxically when that would occur in the humans, in a human. And the reason was that 20 years uh, prior to that time, there had been a series of patients operated on in Rochester, New York, and a large series. Uh, and the net effect of studying those patients was that they couldn't see any effects of separating one brain from the other. And it's fascinating. I mean, just flat out didn't find anything. And uh, in retrospect, uh, we discovered that, A, they didn't use the right tests. B most of the, the disconnection surgeries were not complete. And so anyway, but at the time, uh, the history at, at Caltech was that uh, a guy named Joe Bogan, who was a neurosurgical resident at the time, decided that um, this should be tried again. He went through and did a very careful analysis. And, and the reason the, the surgery is done medically, I should make it very clear, uh, is that patients were epileptic. And the, and the belief was that if you disconnected the hemispheres, where the seizure started would be localized to that hemisphere, wouldn't go over to the other side. And then when the seizure occurred, the other one would remain seizure free and, contr- and, and maintain control of the body so there wouldn't be a generalized convulsion. That was, that was the whole idea.
1: What's the difference oh, between true. that, though, and a lobotomy? Because I know, obviously, in the previous century, lobotomies had been used. It, it, there's quite a significant difference, I imagine.
0: Huge difference. Uh, uh, lobotomies uh, are lesions of the brain where you go in and take a particular area and literally remove it, uh, ah, right. cut it out. This is simply disconnecting the wires between two parts of the brain. So the communication, it's not the actual... Uh, you got a building here, and you got a building here, and you got a telephone wire in between. This is cutting the telephone wire. Uh, a lobotomy would be to blow up this building, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so
1: it's a it's a totally different, totally different thing. And uh, what were the results? Did you did you find things to be as you expected?
0: Well, the question was, well, what would be the results? So, sure enough, patients were operated on, and. I had the, uh, the wonderful opportunity of being the person that tested him. And so I can remember the first patient uh, very well. We brought him up to Caltech. He was, uh, Caltech is not a medical center. It's a, it's a basic science research center. So he was operated on it elsewhere and recovered from the surgery elsewhere. But then he came up to us for the psychological behavioral testing. And Case WJ, he was uh, rolled into my lab, and just as you are looking at me and I'm looking at you, uh, we would ask the patient, WJ, to look at a dot on a screen. Just imagine my nose right here. Well, as you are looking at my nose, everything to the right is going to your left brain, is being projected to your left brain. That's how you're wired. And everything to your left of what you're staring is going to your right brain. Okay. Right. Now we know from a history of neurology that for most people, speaking and language comprehension is in your left brain. So, and there's, and the right brain doesn't have those capacities. So, again, looking at my nose, if I hold up these two fingers, you see both of them. And you can tell me you're seeing two fingers, right? I can. Obviously. Yeah. You do this with a split-brain patient, they only maintain that they can see this finger, the one in the right visual field, which goes to the left brain. They don't claim this this is presented. Why don't they claim that? Well, the information is going to the opposite hemisphere, and you cut the wire over to the left to tell it, there's something going on over there.
1: But does that mean that they can't see it, or does that mean that they can't talk, <laughs> they can't talk about it?
0: Well, r- right off the bat, we got to get rid of this word, they. <laughs> right? So it's the left brain talks fine about what it sees. The right brain doesn't talk, but did it see it? So through testing, you say, okay, don't say anything, just point to what you see. And all of a sudden the hand can go out and point to the flash of light or the hand or what have you. So now you're communicating with this right hemisphere, not by speaking, but by how it responds with its hand and points to objects. So then you begin to think very quick. I mean, I'm just giving a sped up version of this, but you begin to think about mind left, mind right. Uh, which one's talking to you? How are they cooperating? How are are they organizing themselves? So right there in that first afternoon, it was stunning because at the the very first test, it was simply a question of flashing a light, a little spot of light one visual field or the other, and it all poured out. One side could be talked about, the other couldn't, but the other side could be pointed to, and that was the start of... Fifty years of research trying to figure out which each hemisphere does, which which how they how they can and cannot cooperate, what information transfers from one side, and all
1: all the rest of the story. Well, that's what the next thing I wanted you to just summarize was can you summarize the differences that you have found? Now I know there is an awful lot of popular. Um, oversimplification of this out there. And I think probably some of the journalists at the time who are excited by your results are responsible for this. But can you just, you know, obviously with the the huge increase of magnetic resonance imaging over the years and the benefit of hindsight and and endless studies and restudies and, and consensus thinking, where have we got to in terms of the genuine differences, if any, between the hemispheres, just to put the record straight?
0: Well, you have to cut a little deeper. One of the major points was what goes on in one hemisphere isn't known by the other through direct communication. What what your right hemisphere is thinking about or what your left hemisphere is thinking about is not known to the other brain. Just not known. Uh, can one side begin to try to cue the other side in some way, right? So imagine, have you ever danced the tango? I've tried. Well,
1: tried very badly. I tried, yeah. Well, that's where
0: I am, too. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's so wonderful to see the slight cueing that one side, one person touches the other in how to make the response and so forth. So imagine you've got the same body, but you have two different control systems, pretty soon you're going to learn how to try to cooperate. And even though upstairs, where the ideas are being generated, the notions of the movement are being generated, they're quite separate and quite independent. So over the years, that's one big point. What goes on on one side is different from what goes it not go to the other side. And then the second big point comes, of course, well, Are these hemispheres different in their content? Can they do different things? And of course, there has been a rich neurologic science and history of that for a couple hundred years at least, where people notice differences of the lesion comes in one part of the brain and your behavior versus the other part. So it's built on that background. It, It would have been predicted that that left hemisphere should be able to talk and understand language. And that the right hemisphere probably, maybe not. And it would have been predicted that there should be some capacities that the right hemisphere has in in visual spatial kind of things that the left doesn't. And sure enough, you do all those tests in in these patients and that was revealed. Mm -hmm. So it was not, and, and so the prior history, that, that kind of work was revealed through, through lesion, through death of uh, cells in a particular part of the brain, it was gone. Here, it's not gone, it's just disconnected and it can only be expressed through, the, through whatever means that hemisphere has for expression.
1: Which of yeah. these, um, shall we say, preconceptions, oversimplifications, do we need to banish from our understanding that we may have got wrong with some of the popular journalism from the last 30, 40 yeah. years?
0: Well, there was a big thing about how the the uh, left hemisphere was analogic, it uh, was kind of digital rationalist thinking, and the right hemisphere was the intuitive. Analogic kind of thing—that's way, way oversimplified. And there's—you've got to break it down to particular tasks and skills, and those kinds of, of, of uh, uh, simplifications were overdone. Now, there is a grain of truth in the sense that the left hemisphere is the one talking to you all the time. Is the one uh, doing problem solving as we normally think about it. But then you can find out. Well, the right hemisphere can solve some problems. The left is totally at sea with. So it's it, yeah, you got to get into the
1: into into all the, the minute details, the minutiae. And we see this problem across. Um, you know uh, this this really interesting relationship that's been evolving between psychology and neuroscience. You know, we see this where psychology is basically talking at a different level. It's talking at a conceptual level. And although there is an analogy in what's happening no. at neuroscientific level, it's almost impossible not to oversimplify a system with no. so many hundreds of millions of neurons. I mean, it's, we would really not be able to say anything if we didn't simplify a bit.
0: Yeah. Look, <laughs> we we keep abstracting up and up and up till we finally get a, a, a statement or two that we can understand, and we forget all the abstractions we've done to get to that point, and we've lost a lot too because there is so much in the in the details of each of each of, uh, that went into each abstraction. Yeah, this is what we do. So
1: So before we move on to your huge, uh, in my opinion, probably the most exciting discovery of your career, it'd be interesting to find out if you agree, of the left brain interpreter. Just sum it up then, is there anything we need to bear in mind going forward in this conversation about the differences between the left and the right hemisphere, or have we got it now?
0: The real differences between the hemispheres, uh, and what they can do, and therefore, when you speak about the conscious capacities of each of those hemispheres, they're probably experientially for that hemisphere quite different. If you can't understand uh, some kind of spatial relationship, it, so you, let's take your left hemisphere, and let's say this is a right hemisphere function then even though you're in your left hemisphere reading the editorials of The Guardian and thinking about them and so forth, you are not maybe uh, enjoying certain spatial relationships of a visual nature because they're on the other side and they're down disconnected. So, So uh, you're conscious of what you're, com- you're capable of. And if this hemisphere has certain skills and the other one doesn't, then there's gonna, that's going to be reflected in the quality and kind of consciousness of that mind.
1: Ah, that's that it. makes sense. So we're talking about different personalities, perhaps having uh, a slightly more of a focus in one hemisphere or another. That that's interesting. D-
0: different, different, uh, different uh, capacities, mental
1: capacities. Yeah. So, Mike, let's get to the meat of this conversation. In this first series, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get our, our head around. Where science has got to, because we're trying to update our worldview to to really represent where all the research has been taking us, um, and I'm interested in the way that the brain interprets the physical way, the physical world, and the way in which it's conscious in and of itself. Now, your discovery of the left brain interpreter seems rele- relevant to these questions, as it appears that the brain is capable of lying to itself about the physical world it's perceiving. So before we get ahead of ourselves, just tell us, what exactly did you discover um, when and you went on to call it the left brain interpreter, and how did you test for it? Yeah. Well,
0: so research on split brains has been going on for 60 years now, very intensely for the first 50 years. And for the first 20 of those years, I would say we would ask, we would have a patient come in for testing. We would lateralize visual stimuli, something over here or something over there, ask them what they see. We would say, What did you see? And so we would find under all kinds of tests and conditions that they would describe what's on the right side, but not on the left, right? We kept saying, What did you see? And then about 20 years in, uh, to, to the, we changed the question. Uh, we would flash two things up on the screen. So one thing went to the left brain. One thing went to the right. A picture of a snow scene, a picture of a chicken. And then we had a bunch of pictures that they could point to. So we didn't say, we, we didn't ask them, what did you see? We said, point to what you see. So. One hand would point to the picture that was most related to the snow scene. And one hand would uh, point to the picture that was most related to the chicken, right? A bunch of, amongst a bunch of pictures, right? So the two hands were sitting there pointing at these pictures at the table, just like that. And we said, why did you point to those? So the left brain is the one talking sat there and made up a story. Well, that's easy, he said. The left hemisphere knew why it pointed to the picture it saw, right? But the left hemisphere, in fact, doesn't know why that left hand is pointing to this other picture. It does not know it. But because the hand, that patient's hand was pointing at that picture, it quickly made up a reason why it was pointing to that picture. It had to tell a story that made sense to the Why your hand starts doing things, you have an explanation so for it's, why it's doing
1: It's filling in the blanks a little bit, the way our visual cortex does the same with areas that are outside of its exact thing. It kind of, like Photoshop, it just kind of fills it in. Is that what it's doing? It's kind of filling in what we don't have information for.
0: Well, you'd think you... Uh, you're doing things all day long where you are filling in, if you want to use it that way. You are making up a narrative, a story as to why you're doing the things you're doing. Uh, if you are in a good mood or a bad mood or a, uh, a, uh, something's irritating you or wh- whatever the hell it is, that is taken into whatever interpreting you're doing at the moment about some other question. We all fight against this. We all try to keep the rational story on top of it all, but everything's being influenced in the, and you want to tell a story that explains your current state. And in the split bank case, it became, so we're taking the emotion out of it here. We take two actual acts, two physical acts. You're asking this person, why are you pointing with your left hand to that object, when in fact, we know the experimenter knows we don't know, we know you don't know why, but you're going to tell us a reason. And that broke everything open. And it turns out, then through a bunch of experiments, the left brain does that kind of interpretation, the right brain doesn't. So we could localize this thing, this, this wonderful thing that we humans have, to at least a hemisphere. Uh, as to as to how it works within that network, uh, we just haven't figured that out. But it's it's over there; it's not over here,
1: right? Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because this is the area that's sort of more responsible for narrative, as you as you as you put it. Right. Now, I I can understand that happening in a split blame brain patient, but I understand if I understand correctly, you went on to test people with joined. Uh, hemispheres and they were doing the same thing. How did that work?
0: We all have it. We, we, uh, you have it, I have it, the, the, our species has it. That's what we do. And I would, t- I would run the tape back and say, where did this come from? Well, obviously, at some point, our species kind of asked the question wait, why did those, why, why did the, um, you know, I like to use the caveman story. Caveman goes out and Leave some food out in front of his cave, and he goes back in, and he comes back out, and he sees it's gone. He so, hey, what what's up with that? Why did that happen? And uh, well, maybe that guy next door, and you know, uh, so forth. So the the fundamental thing: why did something happen? Why that? And you want a story? You got to have a story. You got to have a theory about it. That,
1: that makes perfect sense for somebody trying to reason about something and evaluate possibilities. But if I have understood correctly, the patient, well, I'm just using the word the patient, the individual, has absolutely no idea that they've just inferred that, right? They don't realize they're deducing from previous information, no. right? So it's not a conscious process. This is happening. You know, if you asked, if you were asked, they would say, that is the truth. There is no inference or deduction that's taken place here. So I can understand that happening as a rational process of evaluating abilities. No. But why do you think, what's the evolutionary reason why still all these millennia later, it hasn't become a conscious process of evaluation, and it's still completely unconscious. This, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the word, invention of a, of, of a reason. What, why is it so unconscious?
0: Well, 99.99% of everything we do is unconscious.
1: Right. Okay. I
0: mean, point to your nose. You, you you really know how you did that? Do I know how that, come on, we don't, we don't know. It's a sea of unconsciousness. And there are these, there's these moments of, of, of our conscious conscious state. So that, that's not the, what, what the split brain, what the interpret story told you uh, was that there are these, and we were able to do it because we could separate a whole hemisphere and we could see this thing operate. It just picks up something delivered to it and it interprets it. And that becomes, helps us understand. Well, that's how, that's how all this stuff works in the normal situation as well. We're making inferences all the time about colliding information in our head. And the, and most of the time it's based on rational, real information. And we're making the right inference. We're tricking the system here to show how it works. We're, we're tricking it. Too, through through the, the, the split-brain uh, research opportunity. Uh, we're tricking it, but then we can see, oh, but that's how it works in us too. The information is collected together in some way and the inference is made and we, we go forward from that.
1: But I, I have to confess, Mike, and I'd be really interested to get your point of view here, that for me, this has really profound information, uh, implications about the way we explain things in general. And I mean, perhaps at a sort of slightly higher level now, we're talking about trying to understand the scientific reasons for things, or even more complicated when you get into sort of political or emotional justifications for things. Um, doesn't this phenomena mean that we have no way of consciously separating an explanation that comes from factual inference from an explanation that comes from confirmation bias? I mean, e- have you looked into that? Is there a connection between the interpreter and bias?
0: Well, I I assume there is. <laughs> we're all we're all writing on a sea of influences, right? Whether well, I, they're on and but <laughs> yeah 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 it's all going on and then and then all of a sudden we pull together an inference because of the need for it at the moment sure I mean that's that <laughs> that's life that's that's what we're doing uh, and you uh, can try to I mean the whole point of education is to try to make that sea of information as humanly accurate as possible and and even when you when you move towards achieving that, you still have all these emotions that are
1: biasing uh, the, the the rational part. You, you, there's no way around it. But how? I mean, there must be a way around it because this just creates. I mean, I spoke to one of your fantastic colleagues, uh, Jonas Kaplan. Uh, we did this wonderful, wonderful uh, episode. Um, Uh, about the backfire effect, you know, and we spoke there about confirmation bias as well. I mean, we really do have an issue for consciousness here because if our... Brain is allowed to trick itself into thinking that it's come to a conclusion rationally when actually what it's done is put together a whole bunch of previous biases. I mean, I'm not saying it never works. Obviously, no. it depends, I think, on how emotionally triggering. And, you know, that was something that came up in a in the backfire effect, that there were certain issues that were just so personal to us, and I think this has to do with worldview as well. It's like if if this comes, if science brings along some new information that completely undermines your worldview, and it means you have to reassess your entire sense of identity and sense of being, sense of you know what it is to be Freddie or Mike at this moment, and you know with this set of parameters. We resist and we find some explanation that says, you know what, that's absolute nonsense because we yeah. won't push that information away. What I'm asking you, Mike, is in your sort of time spent alongside the interpreter and watching how it functions, do you see that there's a way around when we get to these very, shall we say, toxic issues? You know, when we're talking about, um, politics is the big one, isn't it? Or religion or what have you. How do we, well, I mean, let's take science because that's slightly easier to deal with. You know, if we've got some conflicting information, that's actually quite challenging for the people who have to take on board this new data. And the scientists are, are actually some of the worst among this of, of sort of sticking the muds in terms of changing their point of view. Oh,
0: yeah. How,
1: how can, you know, how can we use your research as a springboard to say, listen, this is what we tend to do. Bear that in mind. Because it strikes me that we have a real issue for actually acknowledging and considering new data, objective, factual data in our worldview and in our point of view without bias and and your interpreter coming in and and, and messing with it.
0: Well... You're 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 speaking to the choir here. I mean, I think it's <laughs> fundamental, <laughs> uh, it, and it, it, the depth of how difficult it is 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 maybe best illustrated. But with the scientific example, dogma in science is a real problem. Uh, people can't get the next idea in the, into the tent because of the. Uh, uh, dogma, the existing dogma and the resistance to changing it, these are you know huge issues that people battle all the time. But yes, it's, it's very hard to change a, a point of view, extremely hard.
1: Well, I was just wondering if there was a difference between the scientific community and the general public there.
0: Everybody's got the same brain, everybody's got the same mechanisms. Uh, what change the, the scientists and the, and the more educated person, you could say, might be dealing with a little more abstract variables because that's what they're doing. They're, they're trying to find bigger, but they're working, working with the same fundamental hardware as, the, as someone who, who didn't go through that process. And so, this interpreter and, and uh, constructing stories and all the rest of it that's what we do, that's what our species does. And we're fabulous at it.
1: <laughs> and what does, that mean? what does that mean for the efficiency of the scientific method? Well, the scientific
0: method is a really uh, excellent way to obviously try to sort out which thing is objectively true. It's not a true about for one person. It's true for everybody. And how do you get there? Well, you, 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 you try to get there through experimentation uh, uh, and, con- and concepts that seem more relevant to what the data actually are of the world. And it's struggle. It's, it's not over. It's, there's lots of understanding that needs to take place before some imagined, wonderfully profound state of, w- of what this is all about, what life's about. Uh, you know the one phrase i, I came across recently that kind of just stuck with me is uh, "How do we get from matter to mattering <laughs> that 's it that 's the question right well, What happened with all the, all these molecules rearrange themselves in such a way that all of a sudden this thing matters uh, the, I mean matter became mattering the organism life and the, by the way those are huge questions and i try to
1: imagine my pleasure, Michael, to hear you. As a neuroscientist working with nuts and bolts, allowing yourself to see that as very, very important. And this is a perfect moment to bring in your new book, The Conscious Instinct, Unraveling the Mystery of How Brain Makes Mind. Tell us about the book. What exactly are you arguing, more or less? So,
0: let me try this. Think of your iPhone. And the iPhone is constructed by what is called in the, in the trade layers, there's a layered system, right? And what does that mean? Well, when you pick up your iPhone and turn it on, you pick an application, and you deal with just the application. That application reaches down into a physical layer of the phone and ultimately into the chemistry of the, of the transistors and what have you, the chips, right? There's about seven layers that it goes through. So you sit there and push the the, the the phone one or the mail one or the book one. You are dealing with the top layer, and there's all these other layers underneath it. And ultimately, there's the physical layer
1: that allows this all to happen. So we've got user no under- user interface, software, and then eventually your hardware.
0: Exactly, exactly. There's no Description at the uh, at the physical layer that in any way would explain what you're doing at the application layer. The layers next to each other have to be able to communicate. But as you go up the the, the tree, there you, there's you're several layers removed from the actual physics of the phone. And so that's called layering, a layered system, and and. Uh, the idea, one idea in the book, was to bring that in more to neuroscience and to kind of just bring a perspective to the uh, really uh, excessive reductionist view that understanding molecules is going to make you understand. Uh, as one, what's the throwaway line of Einstein? Quantum mechanics will never understand a British tea part. Uh, it, it's just not the. It's not. You're dealing with the wrong stuff here. You know, there's many, many, many layers in between. So I mean, if you want to reduce it in, in the mind brain business, you want, you, you want to recognize that there are mental states that are interaction with the physical state of the neurons. And you're going to have to capture how those two layers interact in some way. And basically, uh, there's the major belief now is if you just work out the physics of the brain you're going to that all the rest of that stuff's going to come along for free and uh, i think there's quite a quite a belief that that's just not the way to frame the problem and so to some extent i was trying to just draw people's attention to to this problem well i think uh,
1: that's you you mentioned the need to resist the attraction of a single explanation fallacy that was your phrase single right. explanation fallacy right. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? I mean, I understand that you're not a reductionist to purely neural explanations, but rather suggest speaking in terms of these levels, these layers of analysis. And you also yeah. speak about the emergence of mind from brain. Right. Um, do we do we simply have no way of reconciling these different levels of analysis?
0: There are people uh, very sophisticated uh, systems analysis network analysis people there who are trying to get a scientific handle on this problem how the way they put it is what are the protocols between the layers? how are we going to to explain a mental state actually influencing the cellular mechanisms that support it It's a dynamic interaction it's uh, uh, one concrete way of putting it is is uh, uh, Software and hardware, think of it this way. Your laptop, you got a piece of hardware, so the motherboard, there it is, right? It's nothing. It's nothing without software, right? It's just a hunk of stuff sitting there. And then you got the software, and it's nothing without the hardware. You know, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros. You put them together, and you've got a functioning computer. What is the vocabulary for how those two interact? If you want to describe the state of that thing, how do I explain how software and hardware produce a PowerPoint slide? How do I explain it? What is what is going to be the explanation? Because this the physical explanation doesn't capture the software, explanation it's the interaction. And grabbing that vocabulary is a task. And. There are, there are people who, who are working on it. Uh, I can put you on to John Doyle at Caltech, and he's thought about this long and hard and pushed this hard and working on it. So what I was, in one aspect of the book, to come bring it back to that, was just to draw attention to this field of neuroscience, which I think is going to be part of the future, is you've got to come to grips that we need to understand how. The neuron and the mental states actually interact. Capture that look, that vocabulary.
1: You also mentioned the wave-particle duality, don't you, in the book? We've covered that. Uh, we spoke to wonderful John Butterworth from the from uh, Imperial, who's uh, sorry UCL, and he's also at the Hadron Collider. So fantastic show, listeners! You must go and listen to the wave-particle duality show because we really go into this deeply. But you mention it, Mike. Why did you use that as an example to to explain what you're talking about?
0: Well. I was building and trying to get to the idea of a, uh, a very, very distinguished uh, American physicist, uh, Howard Pati, who for 50 years has been working on trying to understand basically uh, a duality kind of thing. He's trying to get to the idea that the idea of complementarity is what we should be thinking about in biology: how matter becomes a message, uh, how Life actually uh, emerges from matter, and to capture that, he he wants to talk about uh, uh, the idea of, of a complementarity, as as Niels Bohr originally articulated. It's a big idea. Uh, it has to do with this interaction of two kind of layers. Uh, how do we think of that scientifically and bring that into neuroscience? That this is big stuff. This is not, uh, oh, I've got it and I can go to my lab and do it. it. really, you've got to really let it marinate and think about how we're going to be able to develop a, I keep coming back to this for the, develop the vocabulary for how these layers systems interact and bring that into neurobiology. That That is the message I was trying to leave mm. uh, in, that, in that approach.
1: Okay. So let's get into the chunky sort of philosophical implications of that for the last section of the interview, Mike. In the classical Cartesian duality, which sounds a little bit sort of where you're going with these layers uh, that need a separate vocabulary that are very difficult to reconcile into a single explanation. You know, we've got the cognitive knowing of our material brains and the subjective immaterial knowing or, or... Is it made irrelevant, this duality, by what you're saying? Because it's as if our consciousness of ourselves is some kind of delusion or hallucination. Is that how you explain self-awareness, as a kind of imaginary friend, as a a simple illusion of brain chemistry, or is that not really your take on things?
0: Yeah, no, So we've established here that uh, we're storytellers. We put together a story, a narrative to explain our actions, our feelings and all the rest of them, right? Yeah. And we are this hugely social species. We're we're cooperative, we collaborate, we are constantly working together. 90, probably 99% of our waking hours are spent on social processes thinking about the intentions of others, their mental state, their intentions, right? And there's a whole neuroscience built up on this now, showing networks that are particularly involved in thinking about others and projecting uh, a theory about you. My understanding of you, Freddie, is a model I'm building in my head about you. Your understanding of me is is, just the same, right? Right. So we have, and, we, and the reason we're, we're doing that is we want to know your intentions with respect to me for all, for surviving, you know, you know think, thinking back from an evolutionary point of view to now surviving this crazy world we live in, you know? We're always thinking of the social, social context. Well, why not, since we have all that hardware Doing all those things, and we know these things, and it's true, it's there, we can find them, we can activate them, all this kind of stuff. Why not build up a theory of your own stuff? <laughs> who, wait, who am I in this thing?
1: Right? I think they have so a mental the, schema, don't they? We have a schema of our self, we have a schema of our body, we have a schema of the world outside.
0: Yeah, it, it's all exactly, there's all well put. And so the, this notion of self doesn't have to be squishy or anything, we build up theories all the time in order to navigate life. And why not have a theory about ourselves? And we, we do and we, we, uh, we're constantly <laughs> surprised at how bad we are in following our own rules and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it, it's it, that's where we are. Now on, on the consciousness thing, I have a, I have a uh, sort of a, a, uh, a different view. There's lots of work going on today where people are trying to figure out the network. Like you hear the phrase the networks of consciousness. Uh, You've got to have this going to that, to this to that, in order to produce this thing. And I, I look at it, things differently. I, I I still stick with the the notion that the brain is highly modular, which is to say that there are particular areas, particular circuits, particular networks that are devoted to doing particular kinds of tasks. So my ability to talk is different than my ability to manipulate a visual image. My ability to emote one way is different from this. There's all these specializations. And so my metaphor is that, and we know that there are scattered throughout the brain. This is what classic neurology has told us. This is what uh, uh, new brain imaging has has, has also revealed, but with other interesting new satellites. Uh, We have all these systems. Why not think of consciousness as just a bubbling up of which one happens to be on deck at any one moment? So each of these Modularized capacity, each of these mental capacities has its own hardware to produce this felt state of whatever it is we're doing in the, in the moment, our one moment of consciousness. So it's not, it's not, it, we're, uh, the brain is firing off through time and certain things are above deck at any given moment. And what those things are, we're conscious of, and everything else is is put aside for that moment and so we we think of um i'm raising the question whether maybe neuroscience should look at the circuits of each of these specialized systems to find the mechanism that is enabling this felt state that we all enjoy and call consciousness and the, mo- the model is one of a, of a you know Babbling brook, it's, it's bubbling, boiling water. It's coming up, boom. That's up, boom. The next one's up, boom. Back. And through time, it all appears coherent and unified because it's just moving along. Uh, but you're not, you're not gathering together the brain's information and putting it into the consciousness room, and we're consciously all of a sudden aware. I don't think that's the model that we should be looking at. So that's what I, that's what I was trying to, to outline and suggest.
1: Absolutely fascinating, and therefore,
0: and therefore, the title of the book, "The Consciousness Instinct," because if you think of each of these capacities as basically instinct, we keep adding to our instinct list. Right, the list of instincts is growing. Right, right. It's very long. The the so whole that there's recent work in the last two or three years of. Uh, on a fly that there are basically 28 circuits in a fly. And the fly's life is articulating when those things are active. And the and the sequencing of those 28 things and can, you think of the number of permutations it can be, it could those 28 circuits could produce that whole repertoire of, of the fly's behavior. Well, we've got a ton of these instincts. And their sequencing and combination could be what we call the conscious whole. right? This is what basically a version of this uh, was, uh, was put forth by William James over 100 years ago.
1: The conscious so, hole as in a, a hole in the ground?
0: No, 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 hole. W-H-O-L-E. As in the complete... Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I have a theory of your consciousness because I'm watching you and all your things you're pouring out of you now. And I say, well, there's a conscious entity. You internally are saying, you are feeling each of those states as they come up and being expressed. So, maybe this could be a nutty idea, but maybe my theory of your consciousness is more accurate than the theory of my own consciousness because I see you and I'm calling that consciousness and I used to apply that word that must be for me t- true for me too when I'm actually feeling these felt states of all these specialized capacities
1: what did that lead to you into your to your 2011 book who's in charge um, it's obviously all about free will you know what exactly are what can we say uh, we, you know we've spoken about consciousness and the fact that a, 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 a sure. A single explanation is, is just a fallacy. What about free will? Surely there are some implications. I'm pretty sure that you're, uh, you're quite a fan of free will in terms of ethical responsibility, if I remember correctly. Yeah,
0: sure, that's correct. So to, for me, again, building on this layered idea, there's a social layer we're all in, right? Right. So the social layer, in order to be part of the social layer, there are rules to that social layer. And one of them is to react responsibly. There's no way we're going to allow, in a social setting, uh, for Jones uh, to act one way and Smith to act another way. We all have to agree to certain norms or the thing isn't gonna work. So the responsibility isn't in the brain and all of this kind of argument. Responsibility is in your contract with the social world you live in. You have to follow this set of rules. And that's where responsibility lies. If you break that rule, you're going to be held responsible. You think of uh, you mean—you know, can reduce it to a, a computer network. So if one computer starts spewing out random information, they got to shut it down. You can't do that. You can't do that. This network has to work with every node doing its thing. Same with a society. You have to—you have to play by the rules. You have to have a set of rules or the thing won't function. So responsibility is to be understood in those terms. You break that social rule, you're to be held accountable. And there's no s- squirming around it because your brain made you do it and all that kind of stuff. That, that, that's, that's just silly.
1: Is there anything else in the book who's in charge that, that we should tell the listeners about before we, before we sign off, Mike? Is there anything else that you argue in that book to sort of try and put this free will debate to bed?
0: Well, I think I've said it. And so I I urge your listeners to buy the book. I'm just kidding.
1: And I I urge my listeners to really take a look at uh, uh, all of Mike's books because certainly doing research into the field as a whole, it is just remarkable how many people from different walks of life and also outside of the sciences who have really been inspired by Mike's point of view? You know, not least the enormous wisdom uh, gained from 50 years, right at the cusp of uh, of, a, of a more or less new field, but the fact that Mike is is not afraid to to talk about real life and what those the implications of that are. So go out, um, buy this wonderful new book, *The Conscious Instinct*: Unraveling the Mystery of How Brain Makes Mind. Um, you can go back you can uh, you can go back and see uh, this book who's in charge Mike's done research on all kinds of things uh, in not just the split brain stuff and the de- defective memory and 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 the history of things of all kinds of stuff so do go and take a look at his bibliography. Mike, is there anything else you'd like to add? do you think there's anything? that's particularly key to now, and I don't mean coronavirus now, I mean now as in where we've got to in the evolution of neuroscience and physics. I mean, our area is mostly neuroscience, physics, and, and psychology. Is there anything that you think is particularly relevant to the way the public are seeing the human brain and the way it's dealing with physical reality? Is there anything else you'd like to add?
0: Well, I would... Re- I, I would look- assume that a part of the audience are students and people thinking about uh, whether this field uh, should be explored, tackled, spent a lifespan in it. And I would say absolutely. Everything that we know, which is fun and exciting, is, is going to be minuscule to the final understanding of how all these things work. And uh, so I always worry that when we kind of wrap things up to make them generally understandable, that beneath that, that duty and that, that statement are these beautiful complexities that need bright people to go in and see uh, what's going on. And there's a, a rich future, a, a glorious future in a life spent Trying to do that, and uh, I, I I I feel compelled to remind us all of that truth.
1: And and this is the search for truth, is it, Mike? Is are you speaking about that that most honourable of trades, the search for truth?
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And if there was something sort of, shall we say, more at a life level than a scientific level, if there was something that you in your years of experience, uh, over 50 years in the field of science, um, and quite a few years on the planet itself. What have you garnered? Is there a little bit of wisdom that you could just impart to, to, to the listeners before you go? Is there anything that you come have come away with thinking, wow, I really hope I can communicate this on to the next generations?
0: It's an um, understanding of what it is when we uh, are interacting with uh, other people, we we what what is it? What what are we talking about? We're trying to understand a model we have in our brain about them. <laughs> That's what it is. What is Freddie? It's a model in my brain. Who is Mike? It's a model in your brain. And once you understand that. You can just reflect that a lot of the immediate passions and concerns uh, that we feel are so dominating. Uh, to me, it just helps to say, "Well, you know, it's models that we can think about and try to modify and enjoy and so forth." I don't know. It does something for me uh, to 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 allow yourself the uh, the privilege of, uh, of thinking about it that way, as opposed to the intensity of uh, all the current disruptions that we feel all the time.
1: Well, and no, I think that's a beautiful place to stop, Mike. You know, it, we live very much in, uh, in, a, in a communal culture. We are mammals. We are community creatures. And I think if we can, you know, worry a little bit less about ourselves and think a little bit more about the functionality of our communities and the sustainability of the way those communities are living on the land, I think, as you say, we're gonna live much richer and more rewarding lives. So I think that's a beautiful place to start. Um, Dr. Michael Gazanaga, thank you so, so much for your time and just wishing you all the very, very best with the future of your research and um, thank you so much for for joining us.
0: A pleasure. Thank you very much.